So uh, we've been in the book of Judges, as you know, and we'll continue there uh, tonight in theory. So look at that. So far, so good. Uh, Book of Judges, I mentioned uh, to you the theme of it all, and it is uh, sadly rebellion and then marvelously restoration. So Israel, um, oh, see, I messed it up. Don't go away, would you? You have to bear with old people. Okay, there we go. Wait just a second. Don't go away. Let me try again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at that. So, um, sadly, Israel rebelled uh, repeatedly against God. And in so doing, Israel reveals human nature. Even under the best of circumstances, we have this inclination But just as that is true of human nature, what is equally true of divine nature is God's marvelous willingness to graciously restore us to right relationship with him. So this is one of the themes of Judges. It's a sad book because we get a picture of ourselves. We're quite rebellious. But then it's a very hopeful book because no matter what, God stands ready to provide hopeful restoration to us. And this God does in the book of Judges through, I guess we could call them kind of mini saviors, uh, deliverers, judges, who when the people of Israel cried out to God for help, God sent them to deliver them from whatever problems they were encountering. And over the last few weeks, we paid attention to one in particular named Gideon. You remember him? He was a flawed individual, very imperfect and yet mightily used by God. He was uh, greatly outnumbered. The odds were against him. He only had 300 men with which to do battle against the Midianites and the Amalekites and other ites, and their forces numbered 135,000. And so It just defied reason to think that Gideon would emerge victorious, and yet by God's grace, he did, though he'd be imperfect and flawed. And even with the numerical odds against him, he won the victory uh, for Israel. Gideon really got off to a good start. In fact, he was an idol breaker. The people had given themselves to idolatry, and Gideon very courageously um, challenged that. So we could think of him early on in his ministry, if you will, as an idol breaker. But in the end of his life, he didn't finish very well. He actually became an idol maker. If you recall, the people wanted to make him king, and though he wisely refused that position, still he didn't mind being treated as a king. And so he asked them to contribute to the fashioning of an ephod, vestments, you might say. Now, the problem with that is that was reserved for the Levitical priest. It was a means by which they would commune with God in ways we don't fully understand. What we do understand is Gideon really overstepped his ground in asking the people to contribute to that. And then he kept it at a place that wasn't designated by God, a place called Ophrah, When, in fact, the tabernacle at this point was in a place called Shiloh or Shiloh. Some of you have been there. And so he coerced the people away from the religious center ordained by God in order to go to this other place. And 
there, I suppose, Gideon walked around from time to time with this ephod, and so the idol breaker actually became an idol maker. He did not finish well. On top of all this, in the latter phase of his life, he took a multiplicity of wives. Last time we were together, I wrongly told you it was 70 wives. I messed up the numbers. It was a number of wives. We don't know how many. And through them, he fathered, this we do know, 70 sons. Well, apparently that activity wasn't enough for him, and so... Uh, he, he, he got a concubine. A concubine was a woman who did, to whom marital privileges were not extended. She was exploited, really, for sexual reasons. And she produced, perhaps you remember this, another son. And his name was Abimelech. Uh, and so Abimelech had 70 brothers, but he was a half-brother. And Gideon was his biological father, but I, I, I suspect he didn't really perform the responsibilities of fathering uh, for Abimelech, the son of the concubine. And that's a shame, as we'll see, because the role of fathers is so very significant. In fact, Paul, uh, in a text of Scripture uh, that you're familiar with, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 uh, points out this important role of fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. No, bring them up, notice, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is when a dad provides healthy restraints for an otherwise wayward child, and instruction provides guidance, restraint and guidance. That's the role of the dad, the spiritual leader of the household. I suspect uh, Abimelech was robbed of those two contributions because, I mean, Abimelech's mother, his biological mother, was treated as a second-class citizen, uh, Gideon, his biological father, never really welcomed her into the family with full rights and privileges of a married man. And I suspect Abimelech was irritated, e even embittered by all of this, when he saw uh, the way his mother was treated as a second-class citizen. And so, again, though he had 70 brothers, he wasn't really an inside guy. He was on the outside. I'm sure he didn't feel fully included at all, and my guess is there was seething anger developing in his life because Gideon failed him as a dad, and I think he resented the fact that Gideon probably responded differently to the 70 half-brothers <coughs> than he did to Abimelech. And so I think you're going to see in this chapter, we're in Judges chapter 9, I think you're going to see the consequences of a a dad who's there but not there, you're going to see anger erupt on the part of Abimelech in a horrific, terrible way. So here's uh, what the text says. Now, we're in verse 1, and you could see it. Uh, Abimelech, so that's his name, uh, as I mentioned, Abimelech. It's kind of a compound word, Ab. It means my father. You've heard the word Abba, 
um, it means daddy or father. That's the form here. Uh, my father, Melech, means king. My father is king. Interesting. Though Gideon refused the position of king, again, he liked to be treated as one, and so he named, well, his illegitimate son um, this way. And so whenever Abimelech went around, it would call attention to the status of his father, Gideon. And so Abimelech means my father is king. He was the son of Jerubbaal, and if you recall, that's Gideon's name. His father assigned it to him. It means one who strives with Baal. That's a good thing. Baal was the principal Canaanite god. The Israelites were worshiping him. Gideon put a stop to it. And his father was so impressed by his son's courage and boldness, he renamed him Jerubbaal, one who strives with Baal. Well, he went to Shechem. Shechem. Uh, some of you have been there to Shechem. It's a place, well, today it's called Nablus. It's in the central part of Israel. It was quite a significant place. I'll point out to you in a little while why. But anyway, it looks like uh, that's where his mother lived. So he went to that place to his mother's relatives, and he spoke to them, not only to them, to the whole clan of the household of his father's uh, uh, of his mother's father, and this is what he said. Speak now, verse 2, in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, or Shechem, and this is what he says. Which is better for you that 70 men, 70, all the sons of Jerubbaal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? This is how he's selling things. He's saying to, see, he wants to be their ruler. And he's saying to them, wouldn't it be better for you to designate me as your king uh, rather than my 70 brothers? Of course, what is implied there is that the 70 brothers were vying for the position. We have no evidence that they were, but he's selling this as a clever politician, and he's trying to make sense to them. And he not only tells them that one ruler is better than 70, look what he says. Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. So he tries to persuade them in two ways that they should select him as king. One, uh, one ruler is uh, better than 72, I happen to be one of you. So now he's capitalizing on his relationship with his mom, who lives in Shechem with the rest of her extended family. This is what, this is what he's kind of saying. And the next verse tells us uh, his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow him, Abimelech, for they said he is our relative. So he's uh, succeeded in persuading them that he should be their king. What is noticeably absent is any seeking of God's will. So once again, you're seeing the theme of Judges, which is contained in its very last verse, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God is the king maker and the king selector. They don't look to God for his 
decision on who should be their king. They just decide Abimelech was quite persuasive. Let's go for him. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, uh, as a successful politician campaigning for this position, he's going to need some help in his campaign. He's going to need some funding. He's going to have to get help in dealing with his 70 brothers. And he's going to need a, a, a team, a grassroots a team of supporters. So here's what happens next in verse 4. They gave him, here comes the funding for his campaign, 70 pieces of silver, notice, from the house of Baal Berit. Remember I told you Baal was the main Canaanite god, and Berit means um, covenant. So this could be uh, translated um, Baal, the god of the covenant. What a shame that the Israelites at this time are turning their backs on the real god of the covenant, and instead they are entering into allegiance with Baal, the master of the covenant. And so they take 70 pieces from the treasury, I suppose, that was devoted to the worship of Baal, and uh, they use it to give it to Abimelech to hire, it says, worthless and reckless fellows to follow him. See the word worthless? Um, in Hebrew, it means empty. What do you mean empty? Folks, devoid of conscience, empty of moral restraint, insensitive to sin. That's who Abimelech hired with the 70 pieces of silver. And so what happens, according to verse 5, is that he goes to his father's house. There you go in that place called Ophrah, which is not far from Shechem. And here's what he does. He killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men. Look, on one stone... That kind of indicates it was orchestrated, it was premeditated, it was quite systematic. He somehow arranged to gather them together on one stone, and there with these empty, morally empty vagabonds, he had his 70 brothers uh, murdered. But one... So it's actually 69 brothers. One, his name is Jotham. He's the youngest. Uh, he was left. How? Well, he, he hid himself. So one escapes. And here's what happens. You see uh, uh, Abimelech's anger and resentment erupts in a horrific way. And he kills all of his brothers. And so we read in verse 6, all the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo, that means like a tower, uh, they assembled together and they went and they made Abimelech king again. They did it on their own initiative. They didn't consult God. And they did this by the oak of the pillar, which was in Shechem. And now when they told uh, uh, Jotham, he went and he stood on the top of this place called Mount Gerizim. It's a real place. Some of you, Beth has been there, 
Patty, I think you've been there. When we go to Israel, we try to make it our business to go there to Mount Gerizim. It's quite a significant place. So imagine this, the one surviving half-brother, Jotham, goes up to um, Mount Gerizim, the text says. He stands on it. He lifts up his voice and he calls out and he says to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So uh, take a look at uh, this. You can see Mount Gerizim on the left. There's a little valley in between, and then Mount Abal on the right. When Joshua led the Israelites into the land of promise, remember Moses didn't make it in, He died somewhere in present-day Jordan on Mount Nebo. Lord willing, in April, some of us are planning on actually being at Mount Nebo. Joshua took over, as you know, after Moses. When this new generation of Israelites came into the land, God ordained that they have a covenant renewal ceremony. The older generation had passed They were direct witnesses of God's miraculous, gracious provision in their 40 years of wilderness wandering. But now the younger generation, they didn't really have this historical record. And so Joshua, under Joshua, uh, he inaugurated a kind of a covenant recommitment ceremony. And so some of the tribes were on Mount Gerizim. Others were on Mount Abal. The priests were in the valley in between And Mount Gerizim was known as the Mount of Blessing, Mount Abal as the Mount of Cursing, uh, for it says in Deuteronomy, uh, God will bless you if you obey, and God will curse you if you disobey. And, and, And the covenant was ratified by that first generation of Israelites in the land. And now at this place, in this very location, it's terrible. Now Jotham, the lone survivor of the murderous plan of his half-brother Abimelech on this spot, he calls out to the people. Folks say it's unrealistic, they wouldn't have heard. No, 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 if you go there, you'll see in this valley, it's kind of a natural amphitheater effect. You really can't hear from one mountain to the other. And so Jotham goes there in order to call out to them. And now, in verses eight and following, You're going to find what I think is the first parable in all of Scripture. You know, a parable is a literary device, isn't it? It's a story that contains a truth. It tells truth in a creative, literary way. So beginning in verse 8, here is the first parable of the Bible, and it is given by Jotham. Remember, he's on Mount Gerizim. Here's what it says. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said (coughs) first to the olive tree. Trees, a group of trees, said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said, no, no, no. Shall I leave my fatness? The olive tree was bearing olives, fruit. Shall I leave my fruitfulness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees. And so the trees then move to 
a fig tree, not the olive tree. And they say, how about you? Will you come reign over us? In verse 11, the fig tree responds and says something similar. Shall I live, leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? And so uh, the olive tree rejects the offer and the fig tree does. And now verse 12, the trees said to the vine, like a grapevine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and man and go to wave over the trees? And so the olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine refused the offer to be the king of these trees. And so verse 14, finally, all the trees say to the bramble, that's a thorn bush, uh, they say to the thorn bush, you come and reign over us. So what's going on here in the parable? Well, the trees are the men of Shechem looking for a king outside of God's will. And they approach various possible leaders represented by the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. And all of those wise potential leaders reject the offer because they say we have God's favor and we are bearing fruit. Why in the world should we turn our back on him and be your leader? So they have no choice now to go to a non-fruit-bearing thing, a thorn bush. And the thorn bush is Abimelech, a person providing and producing no good thing. And so what happens in verse 15 is this. The bramble, now that represents Abimelech, said to the trees, if in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and, look what he says, take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So here's what this useless, non-fruit-bearing Abimelech says. Uh, the others have rejected the offer. I'll be your king, and you, ha you can take refuge under the shade of my branches. But a thorn bush pr produces no appreciable uh, shade whatsoever. So what that is is a promise that has no substance to it. On top of it, he says to them, if this doesn't work out, well, then I'll, you'll be burned up in my wrath. If you refuse to take refuge under the shade I provide, which is no shade, then I will consume you with fire. So that's kind of what's going on. And so in the next several verses, Jotham says to the people, remember, he's still calling out to them from Mount Gerizim. Jotham, the one surviving half-brother of Abimelech, tells the people if they feel they're doing the right thing in making Abimelech their king, well then go for it. Just go ahead and do it. And then he declares this to them now in verse 20. You can read it. If not... But if not, if you do not submit to Abimelech, let fire come out from him, from Abimelech, and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. 
So it's a kind of prophecy. I don't think Jotham is aware really of the full import of what he's saying. He's essentially saying, if you men of Shechem turn your back on God, make this deal with Abimelech, well, I'll tell you prophetically what's going to happen. He'll burn you, and you will then burn him. You'll destroy one another. Now, let's see if that prophecy comes true. Hang in there with me. So now we move to verse 23 in this kind of sordid tale. God sent, look at this, God sent He's the one who sent, look, an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. You know what we're getting in these verses? A bit of a brief glimpse into the hidden supernatural world over which God in his sovereignty presides. Now, God is not the author of sin and evil, but being sovereign, he can use even evil spirits to accomplish his ultimate good purposes. And that's what he does here. He enlists an evil (coughs) spirit to drive a wedge between Abimelech and the rebellious men of Shechem towards the end that they turn against one another. And we are told in the next few verses that that is exactly what happens. But the men of Shechem fail in their revolt against Abimelech. And so verse 45 says, he fought against the city, he, uh, their supposed king, fought against them all day. He captured it. He killed the people who were in it. He raised the city and he sowed it with salt, which is a way of saying he tried to render it agriculturally unfruitful. That's what happened. Salt, too much of it, is sort of a toxin. And so that's the idea. Abimelech is so angry at the fact that they're turning against him uh, that he Uh, raises the city and puts all kinds of salt on their crops so they don't grow. And so verse 46, when all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of El Berit. That means God of the covenant, but not the true God. They're not seeking safety in the uh, fellowship of the true God. They're not seeking his security. They run into the inner chamber, the inner recesses of a religious building uh, to find safety, really, in the presence of another false Canaanite god referred to here as El Berit. So when Abimelech was told that they're hiding out there in the temple of this Canaanite god, he had his men cut off branches from the trees so as to use them to burn down the tower and uh, kill all the people who are taking refuge in it. So we read in verse 49, all the people cut down, each one his own branch, and they followed Abimelech and they put them in the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire. 
over those inside so that all the men of the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. And folks, you can see the prophecy of Jotham earlier on in verse 20 is fulfilled. Uh, Abimelech burns them down. A thousand of them forfeit their lives. And so then what happened for no good reason, it's kind of like a bloodlust. The text tells us Abimelech, for no reason, leaves Shechem and goes to another nearby city and decides to destroy it. We're told that there was another strong tower in the center of that city and that men and women, when they saw Abimelech was attacking them, they went up to the roof of that tower, the leaders, and along with many other men, women, and children, in order to seek refuge from this out-of-control, crazed Abimelech. So what he did, the text tells us, is that he came near to this tower in order to burn it, and the people along with the tower, but this happened, verse 53, you'll see here in just a second. Uh, a certain woman, the text says, threw a, an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his head. So uh, this is an actual ancient millstone used for grinding olives and such, which is found in the Middle East. So this would be the upper part of the millstone. This is the upper millstone. It could be 12 to 18 inches in diameter. It could weigh from 25 to 30 pounds, uh, which implies the woman might have been strong. However, I'm not sure she had the, this upper millstone in its entirety. She might have had a part of it. And so, because Abimelech, out of control, got close enough, she took this and she dropped it from the high tower and it uh, crushed, uh, according to the text, it crushed Abimelech's skull. And here's what he did. He's, not, he's dying, but he had not expired yet. So he called quickly, according to verse 54, to the young man, that's his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me um, so that it'll not be said of me. A woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. You see, it's a disgrace to die at the hands of a woman. And so he wanted to erase that possibility, but uh, too late because um, centuries later, we read this in second uh Samuel, verse 11, verse 21, who struck down Abimelech? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died? So it is recorded down to this very day that this creep did not die a very noble death. A little old woman took a fragment of an upper millstone and dropped it on this guy's head, and he, he died from it. So verse 56 tells us, you see, God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also, God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. Folks, uh, we can escape uh, a, a criminal, a ne'er-do-well, a 
an evil person can succeed in escaping the arms of justice, human justice, and judgment for a spell, but you cannot evade the gaze and grasp of Almighty God. There's so much that's wrong that's being done in our world, in our day. We have a tendency to get frustrated over the injustice of it all. Well, our Father is a pretty good justice maker, and there will be judgments upon every individual sinner unless the individual sinner accepts the willingness of Jesus to have absorbed the wrath of God in our place, which leads me to this kind of concluding point. Who we choose to be our ultimate savior and king, uh, that decision will determine the very course of our life more than anything. Coming from a dysfunctional family, uh, uh, the throes of that can be overcome. Being poor or disadvantaged sets you back, but it can be overcome. Having some psychological struggles, it's an impediment to growth, but it can be overcome. Being a discriminated against minority group member sets you back and robs you of certain opportunities, but that too can be overcome. But what cannot be overcome is if you make the choice of the wrong king. In the text before us, we have seen that's just what the folks did. They chose Abimelech, who was nothing more than a briar king of the trees. He couldn't even provide shade to protect them from the sun. He was a nothing and a nobody. We see that they chose a fruitless leader to provide for them the safety and security only the living God could provide. And what they did is they sought safety in all the wrong places, this tower or that tower. They uh, sought uh, safety in the inner chamber of these towers, structures dedicated to false deities, but they couldn't find safety there nor could they find salvation through Abimelech or through any other human emissary. In fact, all the judges in the book of Judges, who though flawed, were used by God, really point to us, point us to the need for the ultimate king. When each of these judges died, the people went back into their rebellion. Oh, for a king no longer subject to death. Don't you see that's King Jesus? You and I need salvation, and we need a place of safety. And there's one verse of scripture with which I'll close that makes it very clear who it is. It's in Proverbs 18.10. Look what it says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I don't need the tower of El Berit. I don't need the tower of false gods, man-made structures, fortresses, offering a vain attempt to survive the right holy hand of God. No, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, not the one who's morally and ethically right. No, the one who wishes to be in right standing with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. The righteous, who is he? Well, he or she is one who runs into it 
and is safe. I hope in this day, you and I do not take for granted that the Lord Jesus is this strong tower. He has saved us not just from the penalty of sin. He has saved us from the vicissitudes of life, from its challenges, from anxiety, from all the rest. We need not run anywhere else. Folks, it is not a political party who can be the savior. It cannot be a church denomination. It surely can't be what's in your bank account or isn't. It's none of those things. The Lord Jesus is a strong tower. The righteous, the one who would be right in the eyes of God, is simply the sinner who says, I accept the fact, Lord Jesus, that you have provided for me the way of safety and salvation by faith in your finished work on my behalf. Gideon was great. Deborah and all the other judges we've read about so far were used by you, but they had a shelf life. In fact, their ministrations existed only to the extent of their life. I need an eternal savior and an eternal secure place of safety, and therefore I need the one who is the resurrection and the life. In this day in which we Christians even can be tempted to become increasingly hopeless because things are really getting out of hand, run to the tower. He is the Lord Jesus who has come to save us from the temptation to exercise options. We don't need the olive tree, fig tree, or grapevine to rule over us. We surely don't need the briar king of Israel, the thorn bush, when the Lord Jesus says, I am king of kings and Lord of lords, and I and I alone can get you through the throes of life and bring you safe and sound into eternity wherein you will dwell in the literal presence of myself and my Father forevermore. Please resist the temptation, and I'm trying to hear my own words here, to look for an alternative king when King Jesus is really the genuine article. The book of Judges tell us any leader, good though he or she may be, is just temporary, flawed, limited, worthy of respect to some extent. I got all that but my hope is to be in the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and none other. We Christians are being increasingly compromised in the eyes of seekers out there in the world because uh, we are depending a little too much on the very worldly things, worldly people uh, uh, are depending on in order for their safety and security. Ours is not doctors, it's not pastors, it's not political leaders. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does this song go? My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Hey, let's sing that one. It just came to me, so we don't have the words, but we can come up with it. Let's stand together. Listen, we're going to sing this song. And if you're looking for a place of refuge and safety, 
we'd like to talk to you about the Lord Jesus being that very one. And so we invite you into the Connection Center, which is a room right behind us, where there will be people there willing to pray with you, field your questions, counsel with you. Let's sing this one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All. Lord Jesus, solid rock, send us from this place more securely rooted on you, the solid rock, than ever before to such extent that people out there see the hope within us and ask about it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Hope to see you on Sunday.